traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. I've said several times in the past that the Twilight Zone at its best is ordinary people in extraordinary situations. Now I certainly didn't invent that observation but I do subscribe to it. People in recognisable situations that we as the viewer can relate to. Then you drop an element of the unexplained into it like a pebble in a pond and watch the ripples. There are actually examples of Rod Serling's work before the Twilight Zone where we can actually see the pond undisturbed, where the pebble hasn't been dropped. And there is just a very human drama written by Rod Serling for another show that is later transformed into the Twilight Zone. We explored that in the episode called the story of dust. Now there was a show called Matinee Theatre and it was one of those 1950s anthology shows for which they seemed to create a huge amount of episodes in a relatively short time period. Season 1 is listed on IMDb as beginning in 1955 and that season alone had 200 episodes in it. It seems to be a show that is for the most part lost to time, whether it sits in a vault somewhere, who knows, and when there's not much information about a show out there, I don't hold the details on IMDB as gospel, but you can generally get an idea of its details. So it seems that the show went on for three seasons and a staggering 572 episodes which were broadcast more or less daily rather than weekly. And perhaps the reason it's been lost to time is for the most part it was performed live so whether the show was actually recorded and kept I really don't know. In 1958 Matinee Theatre performed an episode called The Cause and Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic describes it like this. A man named Judd with a passion for tilling the earth was returning home from the war when he met a beautiful woman wanting to reclaim what still stands scarred from battle. He agreed to stay and help raise the crops and the two soon fell in love. Judd was a gifted guitar player which broke the still of the evening night when the two relaxed on the porch in the hot summer evenings. His cause during the war was different from hers, but the two decided to put the past behind them and move to a brighter future. When a family relative returns home, she finds herself forced to choose between the man she loves or the family that does not sympathise with Judd's leanings. So you can see, even in that short paragraph, that there are these elements that just need to be shifted around when it's time 
for Rod Sailing to drop that pebble of the unexplained into the pond when we watch the passers-by. This road is the afterwards of the Civil War. It began at Fort Sumter, South Carolina and ended at a place called Appomattox. It's littered with the residue of broken battles and shattered dreams. First broadcast on the 6th of October 1961, written by Rod Serling and directed by Elliot Silverstein. Now Lamont Johnson was originally meant to direct this one, but in the end Silverstein returns after having recently directed The Obsolete Man at the end of season one, which was in itself originally intended to be a season two episode. So this one is a bit more of a straight ahead directing job and doesn't have those impressionistic elements of the obsolete man, but he does get his chances to to throw in some directorial flourishes here and there, which we'll talk about later on. There were two previous opener narrations for this episode and Martin Graham's Jr. documents one of them. This is the afterwards of the Civil War. And this road began at Fort Sumter, South Carolina, and ended at a place called Appomattox. It is littered with the residue of broken battles and shattered dreams. In a moment, you will enter a strange province that knows neither north nor south, a place we call the Twilight Zone. So no introductory segment this time, Rod Sailing begins his narration straight away, leading us into this sequence on the road. It's all about the road, and it's shot from above initially, but then it comes down to road level, and it's quite a striking image. Sailing tells us that this is the afterwards of the Civil War, which actually, at the conclusion, turns out to be quite poignant. Everyone is dirty and looks worn out, and there's even some evidence of the trance-like state of some of the walkers that we'll get more into later on. But while most look worn out, they just keep on walking until the camera focuses on one soldier for whom the walk is starting to become very difficult. So he stops at a nearby house for some rest and water. Ma'am, do you mind if I have myself some of your water, ma'am? Please. Thank you. At around this time in the episode, there is a speech that the lady of the house, Lavinia, gives about the day her husband signed up to go to war, and she talks about the excitement and the anticipation there. They all thought that it was only going to be a short thing and everyone was raring to go, and it is quite reflective of Rod Sailing's own wartime experience in the beginning. Brand new gray, gold braid, and a thousand flags. Trumpets and drums, nothing but trumpets and drums. Beat the Yanks in a month. That's what they said. Beat the Yanks in a month. How wrong they were. And we stood by in our summer dresses and cheered them on and threw flowers. Felt so grand. Not many tears. Just a few. 
because we were so sure they'd all be coming back just as they left. So I'm going to read you a short passage from a book that I probably should refer to more, and it is As I Knew Him by Anne Serling. And in chapter six, she talks about her father signing up to the war when he was too young to even do so. And she talks about being in Binghampton High School where her father used to be and she says it takes a little imagination to visualize that day in January 1943 when my father and his classmates graduate mid-year. Their joy perhaps naive but not curtailed despite a war that will soon alter the lives of so many of them. I see them beneath that downpour of light their diplomas hoisted high in the air as they walk across the stage. An orchestra plays pomp and circumstance just slightly off-key. There are smiles and laughter and shouting to family and friends waving programs madly from their seats below. The next day at 7am, my dad, along with some of his buddies, stand in a long line outside the recruiting centre on Chenango Street in downtown Binghampton and enlists in the US Army's 11th Airborne Division. He is barely 18 years old, and the letters he will soon begin writing home from training camp are achingly reflective of his age. In just a moment, you will enter a strange province that knows neither north nor south, a place we call the Twilight Zone. When we next see the Sergeant and Lavinia, he's now in casual clothing, chopping wood, and you get the impression that he's stuck around for a few days to rest up. But then Lavinia sees someone that she recognises on the road. Charlie! Charlie, it's Lavinia! We thought you'd been killed, that's what everyone said. They said you'd been shot in the head at Gettysburg. Oh, I'm so glad you come back, Charlie. I'm so glad you're all right. Couldn't you stop a minute, Charlie? Couldn't you stop a minute and talk? Almost there, Lavinia. Oh, your wife will be so glad to see you. So very, very glad. I don't need all this. All this weight. I'll leave it here. Oh, Charlie. I've got to keep moving. Huh? Keep going, Lavinia. Goodbye. Oh, Charlie. Charlie, will you give Susan my best and tell her that when you get settled to please come over? Would you do that for me? Though I expect she'll want to keep you to herself for some time. I know if it were Judd. But would Judd come home to me? I'd hold him close, so close. I'd not let him leave again. I'm sure, Lavinia. <gasps> so Charlie is this soldier walking along the road, and he's in a kind of a trance-like state. It's almost as if he's either delirious from exhaustion or sick, but he keeps saying he's almost there, so he knows where he's going. And the one time he actually really acknowledges Lavinia properly is when she says about her dead husband and it's as if that triggered something in him. And I wonder if it's because when she says that if her husband came back, she'd hold him close and never let him go. But Charlie knows that her husband will be walking that road too soon. Later on, I will read part of a review that is very critical of this episode. And one of the criticisms is that the final twist is obvious to the audience long before it is to the characters. So I know we're early on, but the Twilight Zone podcast has always been 
very spoiler heavy, so let's talk about that for a moment. The final twist is that Lavinia and the sergeant are dead. Now, of course, part of that is that the soldiers on the road are dead too. So at this point, is it obvious that the soldiers are dead? I wouldn't say obvious, but knowing that this is the Twilight Zone, yes, you could probably see that one coming. But is it obvious that Lavinia and the sergeant are dead? I don't think it is, because at this point, if you're sitting there playing Guess the Twist, I would think that guessing that the soldiers are dead is a fair bet, but not so much Lavinia and the sergeant, so we'll track that as we go along. The filming of this episode was completed at Hal Roach Studios, and you can see that it's all very contained in this one area. And there was a casting call for 30 men to play Confederate soldiers, and Martin Grams Jr. documents that this call gave the director 15 men of various ages with lean physiques and beards to choose from. So they're steering away from their healthy image of the fit soldier with the tidy haircut at the beginning of the war. These men had really been through it. These men were on the other side. You know that song of yours? What is it? What is it? Black is the color of my true love's hair. Mm. Wish you could have met him. He was a very gentle man. Very nice man. So this song, Black is the Colour of My True Love's Hair, is brought up in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic when Martin Grams mentions that it might not have actually been around in America at this time for it to be genuinely a song that the sergeant would sing so it was thought to be in the public domain at the time of the twilight zone and cbs music department double checked that and found it to be the case now a quick potted history of the song from wikipedia is that black is the color of my true love's hair is a traditional folk song first known in the appalachian mountains region of the United States in 1915, but most probably originating from Scotland as attributed to the reference to the Clyde in the song's lyrics. The musicologist Alan Lomax supported this Scottish origin, saying that the song was an American remake of British materials. So the words are set to two distinct melodies, one of which is traditional and the other was written by the Kentucky folk singer and composer John Jacob Niles, and Niles recalled that his father thought the traditional melody was downright terrible, so he wrote a new tune ending it in a nice modal manner. 
Black, black, black is the color of my true love's hair. Her lips are something rosy fair. The the song has become part of the traditional repertory of Celtic music artists. The first recording was made by Lizzie Roberts in 1916 as Black is the Colour. And in the 1960s, Patty Waters sang an extended version for an ESP record which veered towards the avant-garde and extremes of vocal improvisation, standing as a landmark in the use of folk tunes as a starting point to other musical areas. So it is one of those songs that continues to be recreated by artists over time. People like Nina Simone have sung it in the past. Black is the colour of my true love's hair. And then taking it back to its Celtic roots. Gaelic storm. Now black is the color of my true love's hair. Her lips are like some roses fair. So Martin Grahams Jr. does mention that using it in the Civil War period might not actually be accurate because the song wouldn't be around in America at that point. And I'm not going to solve that mystery here, but I don't think anyone's really complaining too much about its inclusion here. So at this point in the story, the sergeant and Lavinia are sat out in the night and Lavinia makes a speech about the Yankees and the effect that they've had on her. Sergeant. Yes, ma'am. What do you suppose happened to that Yankee who, who killed my husband? Do you suppose he's marching home to his own kin now? Do you suppose he's laughing and, and singing and telling all his neighborhood about the rebels he's killed? All the bullets and all the heads he shot them through? No, ma'am, I don't reckon anything like that at all. The part of Lavinia Godwin was played by Joanne Linville and she said, When I played the role of Lavinia, I was thinking to myself, this is what it was like to be an actress on the set of Gone with the Wind. I was doing so much television at the time, but usually I stood about and helped someone break jail or played a patient in bed. On the Twilight Zone, I was the lead. Well, James Gregory played the lead. We both played the lead, but my role was so much larger than most of the hundred television shows I did. I recall my role was much larger on Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Star Trek, but those were the days where you took what you could get and be thankful for the opportunity to act. 
I think we can see that in her performance. She does have that gone with the wind, I do declare kind of delivery at times. And, and at times I find her performance to be maybe a little big, maybe slightly overdone, but it's not too bad. It's not a deal breaker. But whether by choice or by circumstances, she never had a regular television part during her career. She worked fairly consistently from the 50s to the 80s and, and a little after that as well until her final role in 2005. So in the heyday of the TV anthology, she just hopped from show to show and never stopped hopping. So there's not one character of note to latch onto, although she does have the distinction of being the first female to play a Romulan in the Star Trek episode. The Enterprise incident and the speech she just gave does set us up for our next interaction with a Union lieutenant on the road. I don't know what it is, but I, I, I'm trying to remember. Go on. What is it that you remember? I got it. I got it. I was laying on the side of the road. A shell had just exploded amongst us, tore off half my foot. You, you lieutenant, you came by with the patrol of Yankees and, and you stopped there. On the side of the road, you bend over and you, you, you took care of me. You, you, you stopped the bleeding. Don't you remember that, Lieutenant? Yes, I remember that. Sure, of course you do. So this is an illustration that there were good people on both sides of the war. The Union Lieutenant helping the Confederate Sergeant as he lay bleeding. Now this could actually be the incident where the Sergeant died and he just didn't know it yet, but getting that injury has caused him to limp where he is now. Then all of that built up hate in Lavinia comes to the surface and she shoots the lieutenant, but of course he's already dead, so it has no effect. I do like this scene and it gives the director a few chances to stretch those muscles, you know, bring in a little something different to what's on the screen. The lieutenant sits on top of a horse while he's on the road and we only see his silhouette as he talks to the sergeant and the way he moves and the way he doesn't move you get the impression that he's blind but it's his voice that really makes it for me it has a wonderful quality to it he's not overplaying it in any way he's very still and has this really nice sort of melodic almost speaking voice that adds a real eeriness to the scene. So now there is no doubt that the soldiers on the road are dead, but does that mean that we the audience can see the twist for the whole thing yet? Possibly because they are revealing it quite early on in the episode, but does it really matter? We'll get to that at the end. So this interaction triggers something in the sergeant and the next day, he decides it's time that he walks along that road too. The sergeant was played by James Gregory and he has one of those faces that everybody knows from something. He was a very dependable character actor with a stony face and he could slot into just about anything. His face was ideal for a cop or a military man and that's often what he would end up playing. In the Twilight Zone Companion, he said, On the passers-by, I put my belt buckle on upside down. A big CSA. The director saw it and remarked about it. And I told him, But don't you see, Elliot? These people are dead. 
and the buckle upside down indicates that status. Well, he gave me a funny look and then, Ah yes, Jim, I see what you mean. Good touch. I don't think either of us truly understood it, but it was good for a laugh. There are several recognisable shows on his resume, like the television show Barney Miller, the movie The Manchurian Candidate, and he was in two Twilight Zone episodes, but the other one is the first one. He played a small part of the general at the end of Where Is Everybody? But the Twilight Zone isn't his only connection to Rod Serling. He was in the Night Gallery story Stop Killing Me, playing a detective, and this one is a bit more tangential, but he was in the sequel to Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, where he donned gorilla makeup as Ursus. But for me, perhaps because it's quite fresh in my mind, I remember him playing the role of Hennefy in the Playhouse 90 episode, A Town Has Turned to Dust, which if you go back to my podcast episode called The Story of Dust, you will know that this was one of the steps along the road for the Twilight Zone, Dust. I don't think I really talked much about the Hennefy character because he was very much on the periphery of the story. He played a reporter who went into the town and his role was pretty much the exposition guy. People would talk to him to give backstory, so you could have probably removed him from it and the events would still take place in the same way. And in this episode, he's his dependable self. I think I enjoy his performance most when he starts to realise that he too needs to walk down that road. He's starting to get the idea that maybe he is dead, and it's time not to necessarily accept it, but at least investigate whether it's really the case. But then, as events go on, he pretty much now knows that it is the case, and it's time to walk the road himself. Now, this scene where he says to Lavinia that he's going to go was actually written differently in the original screenplay. In the original script, the second act opened with Lavinia laying on the floor of the kitchen, covered by blankets. She wakes to find the road quiet and empty. She reacts, shouting for the sergeant. He's standing near the tree in the yard. He answers her call and asks if she needs help with anything. She asks if her sight is correct that there is no one on the road. He says that it is so, and she is suddenly aware that he is wearing his blanket and roll and hat. Then she asks the question. You're leaving? Yes, ma'am, I'm leaving. I, I come to say goodbye and thank you for your hospitality, but I, I gotta get back on the road and to wherever the road leads. Well, I can tell you where that road leads. It leads past 50 miles of places like this, burned out houses and burned out roads and... Yes, ma'am, but... Uh... You see, Miss Godwin, I, I was up most of the night last night, and I was thinking, I was thinking about a lot of things. I was thinking about uh, that blind lieutenant and, and your young friend, Constable. Remember Charlie Constable with the, the blood on his hat? And, and then sometime during the night, they, they, they stopped coming, and, and it got quiet on the road there. It got real quiet. And in that quiet, just before dawn, it, it come to me. What did? I don't know just how to explain it to you, man, but, 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 but it's got to do with that road out there and those men moving down it. There was Union soldiers, two men, Yankees. A lot of them helped my boys, some of my boys helped them, but all of them. All of them moving down that road together just as if... 
Just as if what? I really like how the realisation comes to the sergeant. At first it's just a feeling that something's not right. Maybe that he too should be taking the walk down that road. Something must have drawn him to it in the first place. But then Lavinia's husband Judd turns up and Lavinia is saying how things can be fine again. But Judd clearly knows that he's dead. Then he says to the sergeant, you know, don't you? And the sergeant says, I'm not sure, but I think I do. So it doesn't come as some great realisation crashing down on him, oh my God, I'm dead. But it comes gradually. And I hate to talk realism in a show about dead soldiers walking along to the afterlife, but it just seems more realistic that way. You know, you don't just accept something so strange in that way so quickly this is such an unreal situation that you wouldn't just be oh my god i'm dead it would take some time to adjust john are we are we dead yes my darling like all those men on the road mine came at yellow tavern with a bullet and yours came here with a fever no john no i am alive i am I don't want to leave here. Because if I do, it means that I've given up everything. But there's nothing John, to don't up, leave me. I'm not leaving you, my darling. Huh? I'll wait for you. John. I'll meet you at the end of the road. John. I'll wait for you, darling. John. I'll wait for John, you. John, come back to me! So here's our big twist. Lavinia and the sergeant are both dead too. Now, I generally like this episode, but there is one element that I'm really undecided on. I could go either way on it. You're staying behind, my dear? <laughs> maybe, maybe it's not so wise. Oh, I'm afraid. Of course you are. And I am too. Of all the wonders that I yet have heard, seems to me most strange that men should fear seeing that death a necessary end will come when it'll come that's from shakespeare julius caesar <laughs> you see my dear i'm dead too i guess you might say i'm the last casualty of the civil war the episode so far has been this very personal story of these two people gradually realising that they've actually died. There is some comment on the war itself of course, but the Civil War is a million stories of which this was one and to have Abe Lincoln just show up kind of takes it from being these people's story in a corner of the Civil War to a different scale and the shift is a bit of a jolt I find. But on the other hand there is a certain poetry to it. Lavinia has by chance found herself living next to this road that for whatever reason leads to the afterlife. During the course of the war she has unbeknownst to herself died so this road has importance, it has significance. All of the dead from the war need to pass through it to get wherever it is they end up, whether it's heaven, the twilight zone, an indistinct afterlife, whatever it is, there is a certain poetry to Lincoln being the last one to walk that road. 
I'm just not sure whether it's a step too far in this story. Just a brief mention that the actor who played Abraham Lincoln, Austin Green, also played Lincoln in an episode of the television show Medic, which was apparently the first medical TV show to really focus on being accurate in its depiction of the world of medicine. From what I can gather, it was a 1954 show that was set in those times, so how Abraham Lincoln came into it, I'm not sure. Answers on an email if you do know. In the Twilight Zone companion, Mark Zickery comes down on this one pretty hard. He says it is one of the weakest shows of the first three seasons. And he goes on to say what makes this an embarrassing episode is Sailing's script. Turgid, verbose, posturing. It takes a long time for the widow and the sergeant to realise what is obvious almost from the beginning. So is it an issue that we know or can guess what the characters don't know from quite early on? I don't think it is. First of all, I don't think it's apparent that early on. Like I said earlier, we might guess that the twist is that the soldiers are dead, but not necessarily the sergeant and Lavinia. And I certainly don't think the script is embarrassing either, even if you think it's a weaker Twilight Zone. I don't think it's that bad as to be embarrassing. A lot of the Twilight Zone twists seem obvious to us these days, and it actually reflects my own Twilight Zone experience that if I saw it first as a child, I, I probably would be fooled by the twist, but the twist only matters on the first view, and after that, it's about the story and what the story is trying to tell you. So then it becomes about watching them come to the realisation and whether they do it in a believable and enjoyable way. If they had guessed that they were dead early on, it just wouldn't be realistic because if this was something that would happen, we're just not programmed that way that you would you would actually think you were dead if you were functioning in the same way you always have. So I disagree on that one. And I do enjoy this episode, maybe more for its ideas than the overall execution, but I really like the symbolism of this road that the characters have to walk down to the afterlife. In that episode that we talked about the beginning, the cause, which was a proto version of this, they mentioned that soldiers walk down the same road. So basically, whatever side you're on, a lot of them, unfortunately, will end up walking down that same road. I like that kind of symbolism that the road is the kind of road that every soldier ends up walking down. And within this story, is this the road that everyone who dies, irrespective of whether they're in the war or not, has to walk down? Or has the war generated so many dead that this is almost an emergency channel for them to walk down to the afterlife? Who knows? But it doesn't really matter. I think in this case, it's the symbolism of it that matters the most. Now some of the people who walk the road do it in this zombie-like state, compelled to go down it, drawn to some place, some afterlife. And we get the impression that they are aware that they're dead, or at least have a strong instinct that this is the case. But why do our two main characters not have that instinct? Does it make any sense why they weren't compelled to go down the road as well? Perhaps how people die plays a part in it. Maybe it's so sudden and shocking that they don't realise it's happened. I don't know, you know, we could talk about that 
all day but again i don't really think that's the point so the fact that it's not there is neither here nor there to me so as the story of season three goes on i don't think we've had a dud yet and like i said i certainly don't agree with mark zickery that this one is embarrassing and one of the worst of the three seasons it's just not it's probably not going to top anyone's best of lists but it's a good solid twilight zone with a good story to tell incident on a dirt road during the month of april the year 1865 as we've already pointed out, it's a road that won't be found on a map. But it's one of many that lead in and out of the Twilight Zone. Let's check out some listener feedback in, submitted for your approval. I've had an email from Anne and she says, Hi Tom, thanks for your recent episode about the shelter. I've been enjoying your podcast since the beginning. Wow, that's that's a long time. Thank you. And it inspired me to buy the complete TZ series on DVD. I've been trying to get my mother to watch the show for ages, but she insists that it was creepy and scared her when it first aired. Never mind that she was 17 at the time. I've gotten her to watch the less sci-fi episodes and we've had some interesting discussions about them. Personally, I think the really frightening episodes are the one like The Shelter, and the monsters are due on Maple Street. Man's inhumanity to man is more terrifying than any alien or monster, especially when we see examples of it in the news every day. I don't consider either episode heavy-handed, although I think they might have worked better as hour-long episodes, like those in Season 4. Maybe with a little extra time, there could have been some added nuance to the stories. As for the Twilight Zone in general, for me the best episodes combine a great script with great acting. Burgess Meredith's dignity in The Obsolete Man, Rod Taylor in When the Sky Was Opened, Dennis Weaver's performance in Shadowplay. I'll admit I especially like him because he reminds me the teensiest of David Tennant. TZ fans know there's more to the show than just creepy aliens. And congratulations on your Patreon page. I'm happy to contribute and look forward to the fifth dimension. Thanks again for the podcast. And that's from Anne from New Jersey. Well, thank you, Anne. And I hope you enjoyed the first episode of the fifth dimension. I think by the time this one goes out, the second will have dropped too. So uh, thank you for writing in, you know, and uh, it's nice that you've got your mum to watch you know and she was around when it originally came out as well that's great and I'm glad that you're managing to have those conversations about it. I've often said how I enjoy when people send in clips add their voice to the show like this next one. Andrew Schneider has been a friend of the show for a long time and we've uh, chatted on email and so on in the past but let's add his voice to the show here he is Andrew Schneider. Hi, Tom. It's Andrew. Wanted to congratulate you on another great podcast and also to offer my thoughts on the episode The Shelter, which has uh, long been uh, one of my favorites and certainly one of my favorites of season three. 
This is an episode that resonates with me personally on several levels. Uh, To start off with, I have to go to Grace Stockton's remarks when they are stocking the bomb shelter uh, against what they're expecting will be an impending nuclear attack. And uh, Grace is wondering whether it is worth trying to survive anyway, uh, that uh, New York City is certain to be a target and they live just 40 miles away. I actually grew up even closer to New York City than that, and I can tell you that, that this possibility was very much on my mind when I was growing up in the 1980s as Cold War tensions were rising during the nuclear arms buildup of that period. Uh, I've also long been fascinated by apocalyptic scenarios and particularly examining how people behave when they're faced with catastrophe and the rules and protections of civilization are stripped away. Uh, This came up in a lot of my favorite books like uh, War of the Worlds and World War Z, but also examining real-life events of the past few decades, uh, particularly uh, New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. It often brings out the worst in people, but it can bring out the best as well. And this was actually the focus of one of my major academic interests when I was in college. I was a specialist in military history, and I wound up doing my bachelor's thesis on strategic bombing theory as it developed between the world wars. A lot of the people that were writing during this period uh, suggested that bombing population centers would easily break enemy morale as governments' inabilities to protect their citizens would lead to a breakdown of civilization. And uh, this was the theory that guided Germany during the Battle of Britain and effectively was adopted by the Allies during the bombings of cities like Dresden and Tokyo. And it didn't work. People were terrified, but they were also angry, and it led to the determination of many to cooperate with friends and neighbors to resist the common enemy. We get a hint of that with Jerry Harlow's suggestion that absent a bomb shelter, the neighbors should find a basement that can fit them all, pool their resources, and somehow survive. That really only became impossible once Marty suggests they draw lots and ask Dr. Stockton to take one family into the shelter, and the Hendersons both take this as Marty threatening the survival of their children, which leads to the third uh, reason this resonates with me, because... We then get as open a depiction of anti-Semitism as we've yet seen in the series. Now, with his dark complexion, broad features, and thick mustache, uh, Joseph Bernard, the actor who plays Marty, could have easily been taken for a descendant of immigrants from anywhere in Southern Europe or Latin America. But Serling gave him the surname Weiss. And Frank Henderson doesn't just refer to him as a foreigner, but a pushy, greedy foreigner. And these are standard anti-Semitic stereotypes. And I, I, I can tell you from personal experience, it's painful enough when anyone says it to you, a stranger or someone who didn't particularly like you to begin with. But when it's someone you thought you knew and considered a friend, it's every bit as painful as the punch in the face that Frank gives Marty later. Overall, as I said, this is one of my favorite episodes of season three. My main problem with it is technical, not in terms of the whip pan at the beginning. I've I've kind of gotten used to that. It's more in the resolution of the episode, uh, which is when the neighbors attempt to break down the door of the shelter as a way of getting in and uh, a last-minute hope to save themselves and their family. Uh, Because if four men with a length of pipe can bust down the door of that shelter, how on earth is it supposed to withstand a nuclear blast? That's something that always bothered me about the episode. 
I watched it again last night as I was preparing this commentary, and uh, it bothered me even more as I realized how easily the door broke down. Anyway, those are my two cents. And uh, again, thanks so much for the great podcast. Keep up the great work and uh, looking forward to listening to your coverage in the rest of the season. I don't know where to begin on that clip. There's so much interesting stuff in there and some absolutely excellent observations. I think your information about the kind of theory of what the effect of war was going to be, but the reality of it was something quite different um, about the middle of clip was really interesting stuff and kind of the opposite of what we see in the shelter. So excellent stuff. Thank you, Andrew, and I hope to hear from you again. If you'd like to get your thoughts on the show, then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com and I will put your thoughts on the show too. So now I've had a few iTunes reviews that I just want to say thank you for. So we've had one from Den Funk. So thank you very much for that. And also by Fisher. He says some very kind words too. And then Jordan M. Pass. And those were on US iTunes. Then on UK iTunes, I don't think I've thanked you for this, although you left it in January, so I do apologize. There was a review from Nevermind101. So thank you very much. These really help to get weird out about the Twilight Zone podcast, so thank you. So if you'd like to help the show, then iTunes reviews are great, but also you can pop over to patreon.com slash Podcast where you can contribute there and also get some bonus shows to the fifth dimension stories read by me from the time of the twilight zone and also fifth dimension radio where i present some of my favorite old-time radio shows now there's other shows that i might add to the roster too as we go along but that's dependent on how big it grows if it continues to grow and grow then i might do more of my ideas you know there's a few little ideas for shows that i've got the main point of patreon is to be able to put money back into the show and if it grows then i could possibly have someone edit some of the shows for me because then i would have the revenue to say if you can edit the show then i will pay you so much whatever which would free me up to be able to do more shows so that's quite an interesting prospect, but again, that takes uh, the Patreon to grow to a certain level. So if you'd like to contribute, then I would really appreciate it. So next time round, we have quite a big one. One of those episodes that everyone remembers from the Twilight Zone. So let's hand over to Rod Serling to find out what it is. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, we engage in a game of pool. That's both an activity and a title. A play written by George Clayton Johnson and starring Mr. Jack Klugman and Mr. Jonathan Winters. It's the story about the best pool player living and the best pool player dead. And this one we submit will stay with you for quite a while. Next week on The Twilight Zone, A Game of Pool. for her except yes 
to help many people in many ways give the united way